Hi, I'm Amy Umble, and I'm a woodworker currently based out of Southwest Pennsylvania. I'm Brian Beidler, a bookbinder and toolmaker working out of South Central Indiana, and this is Cut the Craft. Welcome to Cut the Craft, a podcast where we talk about handcraft and the people who make it. We found that being a craftsperson is usually a solitary endeavor, haven't we, Umble? Lies. <laughs> but that being said, in our experience, one of our biggest mutual inspirations in our own crafts is other craftspeople and theirs. We've both had the opportunity to travel for our work, and the relationships with the craftspeople we've met along the way have had a profound impact on our lives and our work. Mm-hmm. And be it through discussions about aesthetics, tips and tricks that would have saved us hours of frustration, or just a general camaraderie, the conversations we've had have stuck with us and given us a craving for more. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, we'd love to help give craftspeople and their work a voice that you might not often hear. Right. We want to know what makes craftspeople tick. Why are they drawn to certain materials, methods, and practices? What about their story has led them to this point in time? Well, I don't know, Umble. That's what we're trying to do here. (laughs) But we want to provide you, our listeners, with a way for you to learn about the different types of craft being practiced today and the people behind. So if you're already a full-time craftsperson, we hope that this will be a way for you to learn more about your colleagues, both inside and outside of your chosen medium. As I'm a woodworker and Brian is a bookbinder, we're living proof that this can be a life-changing experience. Personally, I've had great experiences dabbling in other mediums. Hashtag craft promiscuity. (laughs) (laughs) But also, if you're just now getting into craft, we're hoping to pick the brains of our guests on your behalf in order to give you a foot in the door with resources of ways to get going. Uh, And of course, though it might seem counterintuitive on this platform, we'd like to highlight the work of these various talented and passionate people. And on that note, Umble, I think the listeners have a right to know a little bit about who we are, beginning with you, of course. So, Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) But tell us, Amy, who is Amy Umble? (laughs) Uh, Is this the part where I go into a corner and hide? (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Okay. Um, So, yeah, as I said, my name's Amy Umble. I'm a woodworker, writer, and now I'm a podcast host. Uh, When I use the term woodworking, it's a pretty broad term. So uh, to kind of narrow it down a little bit, I would specifically say that I'm a wood carver and I have focused in green woodworking, although that's not, you know, completely what I do. I do a little bit of everything. General practitioner. General, general practitioner. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) Except I don't have an MD behind my name, but that's okay. Although I am from Maryland. <laughs> so you have an MD after your hometown. Uh, yeah. That's, a, that's close enough, right? <laughs> yes. Okay. Uh, yeah. So as I said, I grew up in rural Western Maryland. Uh, it would be called Appalachia to most people. It's very, very... Appalachia. Appalachia. It's very rural. It took us about 45 minutes to go get groceries. Um you know, wait—is that one way or both ways? One way, one so way. So like an hour and a half of driving. Yeah, yeah. Growing up, and okay. we would we would go, we go to this little place in Pennsylvania that was 
pretty like more inexpensive. It was like going to a uh, bulk foods place, but it wasn't a big box store. Um, right. And we would go about once a month and fill up two grocery carts full and then drive home. And that was that was what we had. That's how we did it. <laughs> Dude, that's legit. Uh, yeah. I hate yeah. doing doing like multiple runs to the grocery store every week. So. I know. Yeah. When I moved to college, it was like people would be like, oh, I'll just go get that one thing at the at the store. I'll be back in 15 minutes. And I would just sort of blinkingly stare at them like, <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> you can do that? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, if you grow up, you're like, all right, just put it on the list. And in three weeks, when we go to the grocery <laughs> store again, we'll have creamer. <laughs> Oh, uh, that's awesome. Uh, yeah, it's kind of funny. So, uh, yeah, so in the spare time between grocery store runs, we I would carve. <laughs> um, and I started when I was about 10 or 12 years old or something like that. Uh, my dad actually got me a little Mora knife to carve. And I started... Wait, what are are those like? Can you just tell me? A Mora Yes. It's, it's like a, a, you know, affordable carving knife that is uh, produced in Mora, Sweden, and they've been around for a really long time. Um, and it's a really, it's actually, they're still in business, of course, and I'm sponsored by them. So I'll say that, but, but it, you know, it's true. It's a good knife. It's, it's a great tool to learn with and to learn how to sharpen and that sort of thing because you don't have, you're not sinking like $200 into a handmade thing. It's something that is affordable and everyone can, you know, learn on. So a knife for the people, a knife for the people, for the masses. So I started out carving, I would carve little Santas and like gnome figures, probably just because I kind of wanted to be a gnome. (laughs) (laughs) Life goals. Life goals. (laughs) Hashtag life goals. So, so, you know, that, that's what I, that's what I would spend my Christmas breaks, especially doing. I don't know why I felt like I could only carve during Christmas, but that, that's how I approached it. So I was carving when I was a little, little, a wee little Amy. (laughs) And, um, and at the same time, even younger, I was starting to learn how to use plugged in tools. Like we had, my dad had a jigsaw that he showed my brother and I how to use. And I started using that when I was probably about seven or eight. So, uh, tools, yeah, like plugged in tools and hand tools and that sort of thing have never been something I had to go outside of my comfort zone to use, if that makes any sense. I also like the idea of starting to call any kind of like a power tool, a plugged in tool. (laughs) (laughs) Well, because, you know, I use axes a lot and there's a lot of power behind that, but I am not plugged in. (laughs) That's that's fair. That's fair. Yeah. So when I was in high school, it became very uncool to be doing weird carving things. And and Santa didn't exist. And they were like, why are you still doing that? Yeah, Spoiler yeah. Spoiler alert, like, Santa doesn't exist. <laughs> no, no, don't tell people. Uh, so I stopped doing that. I sort of became an art kid. And for a long time, carving wasn't part of my life. But then after college and after several different jobs, I decided to go take an ancestral living skills apprenticeship in the Pacific Northwest. And it's called Earthwalk Northwest. They're a great school, by the way. And through that, that's how I came back to 
working with my hands and started to implement them in realizing how important it was to connect with my surroundings and the, the fact that I could manufacture something that I could use every day was kind of uh, a breakthrough moment. It was like a turning point for me. Yeah. So yeah. It, we we would make all sorts of things, you know, buckskin and we weaved baskets and we made cordage and we made spoons and bowls and all sorts of things like that. And it made a huge impact on me. And that's how I came back to it. So I came back to the area I grew up in and I was still using power tools and that sort of thing. And I was doing woodworking basically. And in that process, I couldn't get away from wanting to carve spoons in particular, just because they're a little bit smaller and there's something about that, I think, connection between food and being able to feed yourself and spoon carving that is something. It has some like self-sufficiency yeah. application yeah, to it yeah. or I something. Yeah, yeah. I think it's, um, what should I say? I, th- I think there's something about that, like taking care of yourself that everyone needs to feel like they're in control of. And there's something about the symbolism between eating utensils and that that I think it sort of like pushes a button for a lot of people. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So I so I started carving. You know, most of my spoons weren't very good, and <laughs> but I loved the process. I can, I can still relate to that. <laughs> well, you know, I think I being a spoon dabbler, a, dabble, a spoon dabbler. I think that one of the ways that you become successful in making things with your hands is is realizing that you have to like the process itself mm-hmm. and that th- that's what's going to make your work better. It's the fact that you love to... Well, Go ahead. Well, I, no, I was just going to say that is a really... I really like that point because in a sense, like as as a, a maker or craftsperson, really the only thing you get to keep is the process. Ooh. Oh, that's so <laughs> because, true. Yeah. Because, because you're always having to, you know, try to peddle the things that right. you're making. Um, and the only thing that you get to keep for yourself is the process and the, you know, cause you're always yeah. doing another one. Yeah. I mean, that's um, true. And I, I think there's something about that is it's important to remember because if you make something that you really like, but you know, you need to sell it for whatever reason, it's the fact that you have the skill to do that again is the most important realization because the object itself becomes a little less important for you as a maker and the accumulation of skill over time is what's important. And the fact that you could like, well, you know, if I want to make another thing like that, I can just make another one because I already made one. You know, it's not as if you're making things that that can only exist once in time, you know. Right, right. I wonder if it's like, you know, that expression that the um, like the cobbler's kids have no shoes <laughs> yes. or something like that. Maybe it's not actually from a financial standpoint, but he's just like, I don't know. I feel like the next pair will be even better, and I'll let that one be for the kid. That's got to be it. <laughs> this one's good <laughs> enough for a customer. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. So I, I guess I so I had touched on that that spoon carving, taking care of yourself on this very tangible level, really struck a struck a chord right. with me, and mm-hmm. that's how I really really came into my own as a craftsperson. It was like, you know, I do make money making these, you know, other other things that basically squares and tables and, you know, cabinets and using all these mathematical things in order to make something. 
but <laughs> but yeah. you know that I am a little bit dyslexic, and so <laughs> the amount of <laughs> the amount of uh... I'm not laughing at your <laughs> dyslexia, but <laughs> well, okay, so it's not diagnosed, so we shouldn't start shouldn't start rumors, but uh, I do have some problems problems with numbers. And it, mm-hmm. it creates a lot of anxiety for me. And so I thought, well, why am I continuing to, to make these things that give me panic attacks <laughs> um, when I could just <laughs> right. be carving something because my ability in just sort of visual proportions and that sort of thing is, is good. It's very good. So I'll, I'll just, I should just continue to do that sort of thing. And that, yeah, that allowing yeah. of myself to follow the things I was actually passionate about has really changed the way I approach craft and life, really, in general. So, yeah, I definitely have noticed. I mean, just from you know conversations we've had in the past with people and with each other, and conversations we hope to have in the future on the show, I think that that sort of life changing aspect of being able to do craft and how that will literally, it can literally change your life and how you think about materials, how you look at your surroundings and stuff like that. And so it's just amazing though, that you would, who would think that just like carving a spoon can change your life? <laughs> hey, let's monetize that. <laughs> Today is the first spoon of the rest of your life. <laughs> Everything will be epically better in no time flat. Yeah. So, I mean, I obviously don't believe that and I don't think you do either, but there's something about, there's something about the connection between material, being able to harvest material is a big difference. Um, Material, hand use, and your brain that really, really changes your reality. And that's, that's a documented thing. It's not just me off the cuff saying that we've, Actually, I sent you some articles the other day about how your brain is shaped by the things you interact with. So, I mean, we actually need to read more about that, but I think it's mm-hmm. an interesting point to make. <laughs> so, I mean, I don't I don't have too much else to talk about unless you want to ask me about, I don't know, I thought maybe I could talk about axes a little bit. Yeah, I mean, you definitely seem to, I mean, axe work seems to be something that you, not from what you've said already necessarily, mm-hmm. but from what I know Mm -hmm. about you, you seem to like those axes. So can you tell us a little (laughs) bit about that? (laughs) Well, they're just so shiny. That's the real reason I love them. No, I, I think I don't, I don't know why exactly, but I feel like it makes me feel more in control in some ways that, and, Mm -hmm. and my skill has developed in a way that it's not, it's not something that I feel like is a foreign thing. I pick it up and it's like an extension of my hand. And I know that that's kind of a stereotype that people use a lot, but it's on the same level as like driving a car. If you've been driving a car for 10 years, you're not thinking about, oh, I need to step on the accelerator now or I need to you know, hit the brakes or turn here or turn there. You're not like actively thinking right. through that you things. Just you're do just it. doing it. And so that's mm-hmm. my relationship with an axe. And like, for example, I was down at Curtis's making a democratic chair. Curtis, Cur- who's uh, Curtis? Curtis Buchanan. He's a, a, oh. yeah, a really well-known uh, Windsor chair maker in uh, Jonesboro, Tennessee. It's the same town that Will's in. Which I was just going to say, yeah. Uh, stay <laughs> tuned. Uh, you might be hearing a little bit more about Jonesboro, yeah. Tennessee. 
in uh, coming episodes. And by that, I mean coming episode as in the next episode. <laughs> Excellent plug. So I was down there making that chair. And, and one of the things I've noticed between someone who's making spoons and bowls and things like that at, through, through axe work and a chair maker is that chair makers use a draw knife and a shaving horse for removing mm-hmm. large amounts of wood. And I am too impatient <laughs> to do that. And I was like, this is crazy. I'm not going to sit here and do this. I'm going to go out to the stump and just whack off like this huge. I'm going to go out to the stump and take off this huge amount of wood in a, a smaller, a fraction, a fraction of the, of the time, time. <laughs> a fraction of the time for me, you know, because that's a little mm-hmm. bit, I should be pushing my skills with the draw knife. But for me, it was like, well, this is way much, you know, this is, this is way quicker to do it the way that I'm used to be used to doing it. So, so I just right, went out right. and, and hewed off huge chunks of, of wood in probably a fraction of the time that it would have taken me with a draw knife. So, yeah. So I, I love, I love to use the ax. I think it's extremely versatile. It's part of my hand now. And there's something about that um, direct control with the entire process that makes a big difference to me. You know, I can change the angle, the force, how much I'm taking off, that sort of stuff. It's really, it's a freeing tool for me. So it's like something that for being as small and portable it is as it is, I mean, you're using it with just mm-hmm. one hand, uh, you're able to do like so many different things and pretty quickly and satisfactorily. <laughs> Good word. Would you say that is largely the appeal? Like as opposed to a knife, which is a similar scale. I mean, you're also using that with one hand, but is it just more satisfying to you yeah. to be able to just like go to yeah. town with that axe? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it is. I think it it's being able, maybe it's because I'm a little bit impatient too. It's like, oh, I could just use my axe and take off this huge amount of wood really quickly and work whatever piece of wood I'm using down as small as possible before I have Mm -hmm. to do finer things to it. And there's something about that that feels really freeing. I'm into that. (laughs) Like it's, yeah, it's like, I mean, I think I've heard you, I don't know if you used it today, but oftentimes you talk about like sort of like the empowerment of Yeah, it's, it's hugely empowering. And I don't, I can only talk from my perspective as, you know, a female in this profession that's very uh, masculine and Mm -hmm. that being in control over something that's kind of dangerous, you know, and um, that has been, as far as gender is concerned, not something open to most of women or female people. It's hugely empowering to to just be around that. And what's funny is like before I got on Instagram several years ago, I thought I was like the only woman doing woodworking in the world. I mean, that's kind of ridiculous. And but totally, but it sure. was like, is am I the only woman doing this? Like I've never heard of any Well, I mean when you're forty five minutes away from the grocery store, <laughs> right, uh, right. you know, you probably ha- there is an isolation factor. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> so so I got on Instagram and I found Beth Moen, who's from Sweden, and she's making these huge bowls with an axe and an adze and gouges, and it's all completely 
handmade, no plugged in tools. And and I was like, there's <laughs> nice. another one. <laughs> She's doing it too. And then I felt, oh man, okay. <laughs> like there was something about permission that happens with that where it's like, oh yeah, all right. There's another yeah, person here totally. doing this thing. And so I think about that too. Yeah. I mean, it's like a, it's like a team. Like it's like, it becomes yeah. a we and not yeah, just a yeah. I. And that that's, Sorry no, I, th- I think that that's a really important <laughs> thing to remember. And I, I know that there are some people who uh, question why women or even like non-binary people in general, why we make such a big deal of creating spaces for people who are like that. And it's mm-hmm. it's because it's less I- isolating. If you think you're the only one doing this, then it's kind of hard to stay focused and excited about your work because you feel like you're kind of like a a little cork in the ocean all by yourself. But if you have if you have somebody else. <laughs> oh, that's the, it's not even uh, a bottle. It's just the cork. Right. <laughs> Us corks need to stick together. <laughs> no, I, you know. Uh, well, um, yeah, no. Well, hopefully it seems like there is, uh, I mean, I'm also speaking as a dude, so correct me if I'm wrong here, but, you know, it seems like there are currents that are helping push the corks together to continue in the same same vein. Well, yeah, there are. And I think think social media has something to do with that because if we're all far away geographically, at least we can see that there's someone else out there doing the same stuff we're doing, basically. And that's why I'm interested and excited about this podcast is because maybe it'll bring people together more, you know, and that's that's a great thing. Woo! Yeah! Well, all right then. Now that we have a little bit of a context for you and your work, can you tell us more about what it is that you actually make? Sure. My work has evolved in two different directions. I have a focus on putting traditional quilt piecework on utilitarian items that I've made uh, using green woodworking methodology. And I also have spent more time recently incorporating sculptural elements like zoomorphic and anthropomorphic forms in vessels themselves. So it doesn't necessarily have to be completely functional for me to be interested in it or making it. Some of the the focus has been put on the, the form itself rather than the function. There's something about the utilitarian element that I can't seem to get away from. So I'm just sort of accepting it as <laughs> part of my work. <laughs> sure. Uh, well, so would you say in a sense, you know, you're you're not sacrificing the function, but maybe taking it out of something that is uh, intended for everyday use and instead transforming it into something that almost has a implies a sense of ceremony. Oh yeah, actually it's funny. I've had people approach me to ask if I can make them a vessel or an element that they will use in their own spiritual practice. So whatever that might be in uh, some sort of votive object. And I'm, more than happy to do that. I'm also humbled by that. And yeah, it's really, I I was like, what? That's really awesome. Like, that's kind (laughs) of like a dream come true. I'd be more than happy to kind of channel that energy into something that's going to be beneficial to them Mm -hmm. and probably the earth and 
you know, whatever spiritual realm they're working in. Hopefully it's a good one. <laughs> I don't, I don't think it would be bad. I think it would be good. <laughs> um, well, and so I was going to ask then going off of that, how would you describe your work? I mean, you mentioned functional wear and you mentioned sort of this almost more ceremonial and sculptural aspect. So, I mean, are these spoons, ladles, mm-hmm. um, you know, bowls, what are, what are we looking at here for those of our listeners who can't actually see your work in this moment? (laughs) Probably all of them. (laughs) Yeah. All of them. It's all of them. Um, so I am making both utilitarian objects, which are bowls, spoons, platters, uh, seems like they mostly have to do with food (laughs) or, or eating or preparing something. And then I'm also working in these other vessels that aren't necessarily totally conducive to ladling out gravy on your mashed potatoes or something like that. It's more like it's a vessel that is meant to be appreciated in a different way, um, but -hmm. it's still a vessel and it's still something that can hold something else. Okay. Even though it's not necessarily intended for, you know, your next chili cook-off. (laughs) <laughs> it is something that uh, hasn't entirely sacrificed or taken out the functional element. Yeah. Uh, and, and that, I think, is what makes a big distinction between craft and art. Um, Uh-oh. You're I know. taking it there? I know. Okay. Maybe I won't. Maybe I shouldn't go there. I know that we, we're trying not to do that. But but I think I, I, I like that that it's still functional. I have a really hard time just engaging and being interested in things that I don't see myself using with my hands on a daily basis. And that doesn't mean I don't like when people do that or something like that. It's just my own it's my own personal experience with the world and that's okay. And I have room for people who don't feel that way too. I'm not trying to create divisions. I think Everyone has their own experience. So, uh, uh, Brian, let's uh, turn the tables on you. Well, you know, I think before I get going, maybe we should take a moment to listen to an ad for our first guest of the show, since we already mentioned Jonesboro, Tennessee, our favorite uh, bladesmith, Will Manning of Heartwood Forge. Although maybe that's a little unfair to the other bladesmiths (laughs) out there. So we love you guys, too. (laughs) Alloy! I'm talking alloy! You remember that knife from Psycho? That one that made all those violin strings scream? You know. Ugh. That nonsense. Well, you can rest assured Will Manning, a.k.a. Heartwood Forge, has no knife with such possessive tendencies. Though were cosmic forces to bring the same carbon steel into his hands... He would not only repurpose the materials, he would also reverse the karma. Now, you're crafty enough to be listening to this podcast, so you might be telling yourself, I already have blades that slice and dice to my full contentment. To which I say, that's all well and good, but don't mince my words with any preconceived notions or misunderstandings and block your way. We're here for higher notions. You might have knives that do what knives do to the utmost of their known abilities, But I'm talking about knives that kiss whatever they carve. 
that provide more than they divide simply by being used through your hands. Knives that cause sacred songs to sing in the hearts of materialists who have possibly forgotten that even if all is only matter, or even more so because of such, these here are objects that you can tuck into a sheath or drawer after each beneficent use and know for sure that it is just glad to be of service and loves you even more than you love it for your provisions of home and purpose. So, cut to the quick and visit Heartwood Forge's website. And for the sake of true materials and holy constructions, don't miss out. So, Brian, can you tell us a little bit about what it is exactly you're making? I, I'm a bookbinder, so I'm building books by hand. Um, when I went to Ireland on a trip one time, I was very excited that there were so many bookmaker signs everywhere. And then I realized that was a very different type of bookmaking than the type of bookmaking that I practice. <laughs> oh, well, what's um, the difference? <laughs> Um, well, they're betting, putting bids in on Greyhound tracks and oh. I'm taking paper. <laughs> oh, okay. Wow. Yeah. That's drastically different. <laughs> yeah. It was very uh, enlightening, but also a little bit disappointing. Um, <laughs> but no, so I'm, I'm primarily making, I'm making leather bound books, often incorporating elements of gold tooling. If you kind of picture your stereotypical old book in your head, that's sort of what I'm shooting for. Hmm. Specifically, I'm trying to make books that are from, that kind of resemble those made during the um, 17th and 18th centuries, sort of a European heritage of binding uh, or tradition. And, um, but yeah, so I, I make a lot of blank books because I really like the idea of them getting used. I think uh, I really enjoy working with other craftspeople to make them books that they will do sketches of their work in mm. and uh, or kind of work out different ideas for upcoming projects. And that to me is a really satisfying... So I, I, I like making blank books for that reason because I think they have a higher incident of being used rather than a cherished book that you just read even a couple times a year at most. Mm. So, um, so are you saying that you, you're not rebinding old books? You're you're making brand new books that have never yes. existed before. Exactly. I don't do at this point. I don't take in any repair work or conservation work or anything of that nature. I don't. Part of it is that the conservation community is full of very highly trained and awesome individuals and that's what they have devoted their life to. Mm -hmm. So I don't want to do that kind of work because I feel like it's sort of a disservice to them. And also quite frankly, I like the creative process of making new things, even mm -hmm. if they resemble okay. old things. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, but I, I also make tools, as you mentioned for book binding and most recently what I've been really into is I cut the little decorative stamps. We call them finishing tools for decorating these leather bindings. So they're the little, they're what you use to build those designs, the little flowers and lines and, you know, leaves and, and castles and skull and crossbones and stuff. <laughs> okay. Uh, 
so your the process behind that if i if you don't mind me asking a little bit about that is that something that you're you're pushing it into the leather do you is yes. it made out of steel like what what material are you using so primarily we're using uh, I use non-ferrous metals. Um, you do see some historic tools that are made out of steel. I think people were probably just using whatever was available mm. to them, the toolmakers at the times. But down and out, you're seeing non-ferrous, which means there's no iron content. Um, most of the time, copper alloys, bronze or brass. Okay. And um, And so what I'm doing is carving the ends of those little I start out with like little square rods mm-hmm. and I'm carving the ends of them to resemble a little acorn or a line or a dotted flower or something. And, um, and then those tools are set into wooden handles and then heated up on a stove and then impressed into the leather. Very cool. For those of us who are listening to this, <laughs> which is everyone who's listening to this, uh, can you can you describe your your work for us? Maybe give us a mental image of what it is you're making. Sure. So a huge goal for me is to make books that are really approachable, books that sort of have a gimme factor to them. And by mm. that, I mean, you look at it and you're like, ooh, give me that. I want to hold that really bad. Mm. And so you know, I, use is really important to me. So I'm using the best materials I can get my hands on. And uh, and trying to imitate these structures that have been around for centuries, and I want to have fun making them, which is why I'm I wanted to do it to begin with because it's really fun to make books. And, yeah. And so I want to have these books that you know you look at them from a distance, you're like, whoa, that's this beautiful, you know, leather volume with gold tooling on it. But for some reason, it's really it's something I have to touch too. I don't want mm-hmm. it to be this static thing that's more like a you know a piece of fine art in a gallery that you can't mm. ever touch or interact with i want it yeah. to be something that's someone would feel comfortable throwing in their back pocket or at the bottom of a tote bag right like not necessarily a trophy exactly yeah, yeah. and even though the tools that i make the finishing tools sort of resemble little trophies <laughs> those also i want <laughs> to they do. have uh yeah they're like tiny little tiny little awards little um, awards. that's how it, <laughs> That's how it feels every time I finish making one. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, kind of in contrast to your background, I would say I grew up very close to two grocery <laughs> stores um, that I could walk to in about Oh, living minutes. high on the hog over there, huh? <laughs> oh, you know it. I'm from a suburb just outside of Charleston, South Carolina, just across the Cooper mm-hmm. River Bridge. Now it's not called that anymore. What's it called? Arthur from Ravenel yeah. Bridge. I think everyone calls it the Ravenel okay. Bridge. Anyway, still crosses the Cooper <laughs> River. But I grew up in the suburbs. I would like to first just say that my parents are incredible. They provided me with a great upbringing, and I love them very much. And when I complain about the suburbs, I'm by no means criticizing the decisions they made to raise me because I'm very grateful <laughs> for the way I was raised and the love I was surrounded wow. by. I would say that, you know, I, I think Lord of the Rings had a profound impact on me and and interestingly, I guess not surprisingly, um, a lot of people who I've talked to are also equally obsessed with Lord of the Rings. Why do you think um, that is? 
Well, it's funny you should ask. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, uh, I think a lot of it has to do with the element of craft that's present in in those books. When he talks about the things, you know, in the book, the the things that the characters are surrounded by and using, he always takes the time. He is in J.R.R. Tolkien takes the time to describe the stuff they're using and you know the filigree that went into making this brooch or like how the sword was made mm-hmm. and who made it and what its legacy is and i think the having these things with this long heritage was an indirect contrast to my daily experience where i would then go outside and see all these houses that were built like you know a few years ago and then I would like walk up to him and you could just like poke your finger through the side. And, <laughs> and, like, um, and I would always go and, and I would try to read books about like making bows and arrows and stuff and would just have these pitiful attempts. So it was a lot of like kind of banging my head against the wall, trying to figure out how to like do the stuff and make the stuff that I was learning about. And a lot of this is in retrospect. Right. It's not like I was thinking about it in right, those when terms you were like 10 year old Brian. Yeah. Like, what is it? What is this disconnect I'm experiencing? <laughs> yeah, so- no, it mostly it can, it can really be boiled down to just I wanted to make stuff, but I didn't quite know how at that point or that there were other people mm-hmm. doing it. So while I wasn't isolated from a grocery store standpoint, I was isolated from like a, I guess, a, a people making a maker's mm-hmm. standpoint, mm-hmm. I guess. So it wasn't until I was in high school sitting in an art class and, you know, being an angsty teen and that where we were planning to do this project where um, you had to like take a book apart and put uh, do like a sculpture out of oh. it. It was kind of like cutting away elements to make it more of like mm-hmm. a sculpture out of an existing yeah, yeah. book, like a library yeah. discard or something. And I remember thinking in that moment, I want to do the exact opposite of that. I want to, I want to start with the paper and I want to make a book like the old oh. way. <laughs> and and had you been reading um, Lord of the Rings at that point? Were you, were you thinking about that? I had, I was not currently reading Lord of the Rings. No, but it was like, I was obsessed, man. I, I, <laughs> for, I, I think I read it like sixth grade. I read all three of the Whoa, Lord of the Rings. What? And that was right when. That's intense. Yeah, that was, and that was right when the, well, I was homeschooled. Oh, so I had a lot you, of time wait, off. you were homeschooled? For two years. Yeah, for sixth and seventh grade. Oh my gosh, I didn't know that. Yeah. I don't think I actually read a book until I was in sixth grade. Like I had problems reading and I was oh. like, all right, I'm going to like sit down and read this Martin the Warrior, which is the Brian Jock. <laughs> oh, Redwall. Redwall, yeah. And I was like, and, you know, in some ways, that's kind of similar that he really is descriptive, um, especially about feasts and stuff like well, that. It's funny because Redwall so. was my Lord of the Rings primer. Like I, I uh-huh. was yeah. in the same time period, I was reading tons of Redwall books. Mm-hmm. I think I read like 14 of them. Holy cow. And I'm sure there were like 25 of them <laughs> after that because <laughs> they're all kind of the same book. <laughs> He's just like, this time Martin the Warrior is going to be a badger. Um, <laughs> But uh, Salamander strong. But yeah, I mean, from a very early age, some of my earliest memories are like my dad reading me before reading to me before I went to sleep. Mm-hmm. And like uh, we would read the Redwall books. And then later on, I got in trouble for reading them uh, because I would stay up all night and then be exhausted for school. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, but yeah, kind of kind of scooting uh, back to what we were talking about. I Yeah, so I wasn't reading them at the time. But I, I, you know, I just, I was still in the mindset and still obsessed, you know, and the movies had come out by that point. And so it was just like 
still pretty pretty all consuming for me mm-hmm. and so this idea popped in my head but I still like it was kind of right before like there was a lot of stuff online at least that I knew how to find cuz one thing I know that we're hoping to do with the podcast is is make it sort of like a resource for people mm-hmm. to learn more about how to get involved right um and so I'm I didn't really feel like I had that. Even though there were great online resources, I just didn't know how to find them mm-hmm. or how to use them if mm-hmm. I did. Um, and so um, I just kind of sat on that desire to learn how to do it for a few years till I was in college and at the College of Charleston. And I was um, reading this older book and the front cover had torn off. Like I got it from a used bookstore. So I just took it into the library. I was like, there has to be someone who knows how to fix this. Uh-huh. Um so they eventually directed me to the special collections because they go, oh, yeah, Marie Ferrara. She knows she knows how to do that. Um, you know, go talk to her. So I went up there and uh, Marie was the head of special collections. And long story short, after a lot of begging and displays of enthusiasm, enthusiasm, <laughs> I uh, she, she became my first mentor and very generously took time out of her day to to teach me kind of basic book binding and repair. They had like a whole little setup in the in the back of special collections. And was this while you were in college? Yes. Yeah, this was my sophomore year of wow, college. Wow, so you were just um, you were you were so passionate about it that you like to me I think about the things that I was doing in college and it wasn't like pursuing how to bind books. <laughs> and I'm like, mm, I'm going to spend my time in the library with this with this person who's taking time out of their day to fix this old book. I mean, I definitely will say that I had a, how to put it, a robust social life mm-hmm. in college. Um, but I also really, you know, there were times when I would just spend my evenings, I got a, a nipping press, which is kind of like a, a cast iron like it's like if you look up book press it's going to be the picture that pops up it's like mm-hmm. a sort of iconic like thing it looks you would like it's, for, it would squish all the books together is that what it is yes exactly one of those yep. things yeah yeah and um and so i bought one um from marie and for a very good deal she was very very kind to me <laughs> and i would spend just like hours and hours just like with some steel wool like stripping it down and repainting it and it's still one of the main ones i use every day so thanks marie you changed my life but <laughs> yeah i mean but finding mentors and stuff like that isn't always easy for people and so i feel really grateful mm. um for that um and i'd always been obsessed with um with older books and i when I was learning after Maria, I've taken a series of workshops. I got a job working for um, a little membership library called the Charleston Library Society down in South Carolina. And I worked there for four years and they were very, very generous with funding my continuing education. So I would take workshops, places and things that I needed to learn, which was awesome. And But the types of books that people were making were never quite what I wanted to make, which was something that had the look and feel of an old book, but could also still sort of like be my own thing, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I started looking, diving in a little bit more to like bookbinding history and figuring out, trying to find the details of like, what is it about these little books that I'm so attracted to, as opposed to like a modern design binding kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I slowly was able just to learn more about historic practices and materials and met a few very influential people in my life who 
turn we'll talk about i'm sure throughout the course of the show um and maybe even interview but i was turned on to tool making from there and in many ways that's kind of become my primary gig right now as i do i mean i t- do some book binding commissions but the types of books i make are really it's the types of books that i want to make so i really limit myself with the <laughs> types of commissions i can take in right. which isn't always the best idea but yeah it's like you know i don't want to become known for doing work that i don't enjoy doing and then right. but i also don't want to do a bad job for something exactly so, exactly <laughs> Well, that um, comes back to the whole you, like cabinetry versus carving. You know, yeah, people exactly. are more likely to pay a lot of money for a table that takes a lot less time than a funny little hand carved thing. But it's <laughs> it's kind of like the risk you have to take. Sounds like you're doing the same thing. Totally. And well, on that, my friend, on a fellow bookbinder, um, Sam Feinstein, who's absolutely incredible. Um, his his work is amazing, but um, he told me he was just like, yeah. The advice I always give people starting out is, you know, do the work that you want to do because mm-hmm. that's the work that you'll eventually get paid to do. Right, um, right, right. And that's and hard. So just, it is, and it's not always fun. Yeah. Um, but uh, and and that's kind of in a lot of ways too. Once I learned about tool making, I was like, that was something about that appealed to me even slightly more than making the books. And oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And so I was just really grateful once again to run into these, you know, the book world is, as you can imagine, is a pretty tight knit community, mm-hmm. but a very receptive one. Closely well. bound. <laughs> yeah, ooh, I see what you did there. <laughs> um, you could say it's bound to last. <laughs> bound to last. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so it's like everyone in the community is very generous because they understand that for our mutual survival, for the craft survival, we have to be generous with each other. Like there's mm-hmm. no old guild secrets and stuff like that. It's yeah. like everyone's just like, oh yeah, you emailed me about that? Sure, here's all the things you need to know. Like have fun. Let right. me know if you have any problems. It's oh, super cool. That's really good. Yeah, that's important, yeah. I think, to to note. I'm sure that's a big difference between the way that it is now and the way that it would have been when the books you're interested in would have been yeah we're being made we're being made yeah yeah absolutely yeah um and but no i you know i i think that also something from from teaching workshops a lot of times uh that's another big aspect of what i do now i've had to cast my net since from going solo the last few years i've had to cast my net very wide for sources of income Hmm. Um, and I'm in the process of sort of trying to like whittle those down, mm-hmm. um, and figure out what it is that I want to, to do from, you know, mm-hmm. moving forward. Mm-hmm. But, um, I've had the chance to travel a lot, as you mentioned earlier. Um, and, and so I've really found that teaching is, and, and more, more than teaching and getting paid for it necessarily, I care a lot more about just like facilitating people's involvement in making things with their hands so it's like any way that i can help make that happen i care about that a lot more than being known as a great book binder or a great right. tool maker or whatever yeah, um, yeah and that's one of the things that makes me so excited about this show and you know i'm as we talked about with craft promiscuity <laughs> i like I also have found that through you know different online communities uh be it through like social media or you know, just different listservs and stuff like people are so many 
people are making things and doing cool stuff. And it makes me want to try all those little things. And, and oftentimes there is some overlap with some aspect of what I'm already doing. So it's just been really inspiring to be able to participate in the, in the communities. Yeah. And do you feel that those different communities have been welcoming to newcomers? I mean, I would say so. I mean, like think of how you and I met where I just like sent you a message. I was like, Hey, I love your work. And like, and now look at us. Now look at us. Best friends for life. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, well, I, um, you know, I think, I think you hit on something important there in the willingness to take time out of your practice, whatever it may be, and actually talk to people who are, who might be struggling or they're just interested in your work or, you know, something like that, just to like say, hey, you know, I recognize that you're out there. I, you know, I could help you in whatever way I, whatever way that I can. And there's something about that that's community building in a really basic way where Absolutely. it could be anything that you're interested in. I don't, you know, it doesn't have to necessarily be craft, but I think just being open and friendly is really important to building community in general. Yeah, 100%. Mm -hmm. Well, and so, and on that note, I mean, how do we want to, how are we going to structure building this community here we're trying to do with the podcast? Mm. Yeah. So uh, if any of this appeals to you, please feel free to hit subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and to follow us on Instagram at Cut the Craft Podcast to see images of our guests' work and to stay up to date on happenings and releases. You can also find myself and Brian uh, trolling around on Instagram and our handles, <laughs> hopefully not actually trolling, but um, positive trolling. Positive trolling on Instagram. Uh, my my uh, my handle is <laughs> at a m y underscore u m b e l Amy Umble, and Brian is b h Bidler, and that is spelled at b h b e i. D-L-E-R. Also, if you have any questions, interview requests, or just want to start an argument, you can send the arguments to Brian. <laughs> no! <laughs> yeah. um, you can email us at cutthecraftpodcast at gmail.com. And also, uh, just for starters, we'll be releasing episodes on a bi-weekly basis. So you can look for our first episode with Bladesmith Will Manning from Jonesboro, Tennessee, two weeks from today. And just to whet your appetite, here's a brief clip from that interview. Um, I think we probably already asked the, does craft satisfy something that you don't get from another job? Did you have any thoughts on that? I just wrote definitely and then and then had like a little blob of ink next to that. <laughs> 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 Though this may sound like just a couple of yahoos hanging out in their living rooms making chit chat. It is. We've already, <laughs> which it kind of is. Uh, <laughs> we've already had a surprising amount of help to make our first episode a reality. So, you know, we'd love to thank um, Brad Vetter for making us look like we know what we're doing with his graphic design expertise. Our good friends, the High Divers, for letting us use their sweet jams. Our resident poet, Justin Williams, for his commercial wizardry. And to Ian Carstens for his help and advice with the technical side of things. 
And in fact, he curates his own video interview series called Glass Breakfast that you can find with a quick internet search. And in case you can't tell, we are super excited about this show and have put a load of ourselves into it already. So we hope you enjoy listening to it as much as we have making it. See you next time. Bye. Bye.